in the late 1800s, a man by the name of George Walser decided that he was going to found a town here in the state of Missouri that he named Liberal, Missouri. His charter for this particular town was that only people who did not believe in God could be members of Liberal, Missouri. The prospect here was that he believed he was going to show the world that an atheistic society could be productive, could be wholesome, and would be a society that other people would want to imitate. You can go to liberal Missouri now. I don't know if you have ever been. The population might have changed since I was there last, about eight years ago or so. I was doing a series in Lamar, Missouri, and it's about 45 minutes away from liberal Missouri. And you can see the street names. George Walzer was the founder of liberal Missouri, named the street after him. Darwin Drive, named after Charles Darwin, a person who is recognized for bringing in Darwinism and leading others to conclude that there was no God and that there's no design in the universe and that animals just came on the scene by gradual chance processes over millions of years. If you continued on, you would see Ingersoll Lane, named after Robert Ingersoll, the well-known agnostic of the day. Well, when he started this town with the intent to show the world that atheism is a very productive philosophy that can help people be the kind of society that people want, he miscalculated just a tad. In fact, not only did liberal Missouri not show the world that atheism is a productive philosophy that can help a society prosper, but it showed just the opposite. The town of liberal Missouri quickly digressed into a moral morass of very seriously immoral bad things. And so a guy by the name of Clark Braden, who if I understand it right, was a member of the Lord's Church. He was a traveling preacher and a debater. He stopped in liberal Missouri to see just what was going on. And when he did, he reported what he found in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. What you're looking at there on the screen is an actual copy of the 1885 St. Louis Post-Dispatch article by Clark Brady. In this article, he says that all of the children are completely disrespectful to their parents. They all cuss along with the women and the men, certainly. He said most everybody gets drunk on a regular basis in liberal Missouri. He said the hotels have digressed into brothels. He said most everybody would get out if they could, but the property value has sunk so low that they cannot even sell their property, and so they are stuck there. Their liberal Missouri is a complete, utter failure. That's what he said in this article. Well, of course, the people in liberal Missouri did not take that sitting down. One of the hotel owners who read this article sued Clark Braden in 1885 for $25,000. And in 1885, $25,000 was a considerable amount of money. But Clark Braden never had to appear before the court. In fact, what they ascertained was that his statements were so justified by the actual happenings in liberal Missouri that he did not have to appear in court. The person who sued him had to pay all of the court costs and the case was dismissed. Now... What are we saying when we look to liberal Missouri and use it as an example? It was supposed to be an example of how an atheistic society, untainted by religion, can be wholesome and productive and profitable and good, and yet it proved just the opposite. What if people act in their life like there is no God? That's a good question. And that is what we're going to be exploring this morning, the fruits of atheism. What if a person put into practice his or her belief that there is no God? Now, it's ironic that George Walser is not buried in liberal Missouri. In fact, if you've ever visited liberal Missouri, you would see a cemetery of several hundred people that are buried in a very strange way. They're all buried in a circle, and there is one grave left open 
in the middle of the cemetery in Liberal, Missouri, that was initially supposed to be for George Walser. It was not for George Walser because later he came in contact with the teachings of Jesus Christ and decided he did not want to be buried in a city that was in a town that was filled with people who did not believe in God. This tomb that you are looking at here is in Lamar, Missouri, 45 minutes outside of Liberal because George Walser didn't want to be buried in the city with those other people who did not believe in God. Now, if we were to ask the simple question, what happens when Christianity takes over a place? What happens when people start acting like Jesus said act? Now, this is a statement from a man named Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell once wrote a essay titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. He did not believe that the Bible was God's Word. He certainly did not have any love for the teachings of Christianity insofar as he said that Jesus taught about hell and that was the most morally depraved idea that he could think of and there's no way Jesus could be a loving person if he were suggesting that there was an eternal hell. But here's what he said about how Christianity affects society. He said, Christianity, as soon as it conquered the state, put an end to the gladiatorial shows. Not because they were cruel, but because they were idolatrous. The result, however, was to diminish the widespread education and cruelty by which the populace of Roman towns were degraded. Christianity also did much to soften the lot of slaves. It established charity on a large scale, inaugurated hospitals. Although the great majority of Christians failed lamentably in Christian charity, the ideal remained alive. And in every age inspired some notable saints. In a new form, it passed over modern liberalism and remains the inspiration of much that is most hopeful in our somber world. Uh, Mr. Russell, are you a Christian? No, I'm not a Christian. Do you think people should be Christians? No. Here's an essay why I'm not a Christian. Mr. Russell, what happens when people act like Christians? Uh, they soften the lot of slaves, they establish charity on a large scale, they inaugurate hospitals, and the idea of Christianity remains the inspiration behind much that is most hopeful in our somber world. You know, you think about that. What if people really did do what Christ taught them to do? What if we all treated other people like we wanted to be treated in everyday business, in our families, our husbands, our spouses, our children, treated one another as they wanted to be treated. What if we had this mind in us which was in Christ Jesus? In Philippians chapter 2, that in lowliness of mind we esteem others better than ourselves. What if we didn't look out for our own interests, but we look out for the interest of others and let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit? Wouldn't that be an exciting society that you would want to be a part of? What if every single one of us were tender-hearted one to another with brotherly kindness, forgiving one another, just as Christ also forgave us? Do you think you would want to live in a place like that? What if you lived in a place where every single person obeyed the inspired word that says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do you think we'd have a problem with bullying them? Do you think that we'd have a problem with low self-esteem because people are always talking down to others, explaining why they're not doing a good enough job and why they're not pretty enough or why they're not fast enough or smart enough. You think we'd have a problem with that? Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary building up that it may impart grace to the hearers. Wouldn't that be an exciting place to live? Wouldn't you want to be in a family like that or a society like that? Absolutely, positively. When people act like Christ taught them to act, it's heaven on earth. It's the closest thing you can get. Now, the agnostics, atheists have to recognize that. Now, what they'll say is, yeah, well, lots of Christians aren't acting like Christ taught us to act. Well, that's true. You know, what's to be said about that? If you were to put into practice the teachings of Jesus Christ, what would society look like? It would be wonderful. It would be magnificent. It would be wholesome and good in a place where everybody wants to live. Is it true that some people call themselves Christians and don't live out Christianity? Yes. 
Does that mean there's a problem with Christianity? No. It means there's a problem with the practitioner. Now, is it true that some people claim to be atheists, but in many respects they behave in a way that would match Christian principles? And what I mean by that is, do some people claim to be atheists and they do not murder people? Yes. Do some people say, I don't believe in God and they don't steal? Yes. Do many people say, I'm an atheist, but they don't get drunk and cause problems like would be from stemming from getting drunk in public, etc.? Is that the case? Yes. Here's what I'm saying. What you have to judge the idea, the philosophy by, is not what the practitioner necessarily does, but what the philosophy says the practitioner should do. You see the difference? Now, Christianity, if people acted like Christians, the place would be wonderful. What about atheism? What about if you really didn't believe that there was a God? Well, I'm going to show you, you don't have to take my word for any of this. I'm going to give you the atheist own words on this subject. The first statement that we need to make is that atheism cannot answer moral questions. Atheism cannot tell you if something is right or something is wrong. Uh, This man's name is William Provine. William Provine gave a speech on the University of Tennessee in Knoxville for the 1998 Darwin Day celebration. And in that speech, here's what William Provine said. He said, naturalistic evolution has clear consequences that Charles Darwin understood perfectly. He said, one of those is that no gods worth having exist. The second is that no life after death exists. And look at the third. No ultimate foundation for ethics exists. Now, what's he trying to say there? What he's trying to say is that if you are evolved primordial slime, and the person next to you is evolved primordial slime, then your opinion about what's right and wrong is just as good as his or her opinion about what's right and wrong, and there is no ultimate standard out there that tells you whose is right. So if you want to decide if something is right or wrong, you can't really even say that. You just have to ask, well, how would it benefit society? What good is it going to do? Is it going to help the person who's doing it? Is it going to be beneficial for the natural resources that they have? You can't say this is right or this is wrong. So if we wanted to ask the question, is adultery right or wrong? Atheism cannot answer that question. Atheism can only say, well, what would it do to society? How would it help? How would it hurt? How would it pass on genetic information? Atheism cannot answer right and wrong questions. Here's what Charles Darwin said. A man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or of future existence with retribution and reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem the best ones to him. He said, I'll tell you what, if there's a person who doesn't believe in God, the best he can do is just follow the instincts and impulses that seem the strongest to him. So if you were to go to a person who feels like the impulse that is the strongest to him is that he goes into convenience stores and he shoots the tellers and he steals the money, and you were to say, is this wrong? Now here's what the atheist can say. We don't like it. We don't want to be the victim of that, and so we're going to make rules to try to keep that from happening. But if you were to say, no, no, no. The question is not you don't like it, you want to try to stop it. The question is, is it wrong? The atheist then has to ask, well, what are the impulses and instincts that seem the strongest to that guy? And if he says, my impulses and instincts that seem the strongest are, I need to steal money to live. Atheism has to say, well, we don't like it, but it's as good as your impulse to go visit the people in the nursing home, and it's just as strong as your impulse to give money to the people over in the Philippines who have just been hit by a typhoon. So you're saying that that's your strongest impulse, and you're following that, and this guy's following stealing, and he thinks that's his strongest impulse. So uh, we'd like to be able to say one of them's right, one of them's wrong, but we can't. Now, folks, that's Charles Darwin William Provine. William Provine has a Ph.D. from Cornell University and was recognized as one of the leading atheistic Speakers to such a degree that they invited him to Darwin Day. And continue with me. Here's what Dan Barker said. There are no actions in and of themselves that are always absolutely right or wrong. It depends on the context. You cannot name an action that is always absolutely right or wrong. I can think of an exception in every case. 
Now, I thought that once the atheistic community saw this and laid out clearly for them, they would absolutely shun and separate themselves from Dan Barker, if at all possible. They did not. Let me explain what I mean by that. In 19, I believe it was 1995, Dan Barker was in a debate with a guy by the name of Peter Payne. Peter Payne was debating Dan Barker on the issue of right and wrong. And he was explaining that without a standard, without God, without some type of measuring stick, you just cannot say some things are right and some things are wrong. Dan Barker made this statement right here that you are reading. Afterwards, these students at this university were allowed to come and ask questions. And one student came up and said, now, I want you to understand this is exactly what he said to Dan Barker. He said, if you say that every action can be right in some circumstances, when would rape be morally right? Dan Barker said, well, you know, it would be very unusual for it ever to be morally right, but I can think of a case in which it would be. He said, hypothetically, suppose aliens came down and they said they're going to kill every single person in the world unless someone raped a person, then that would make it morally right. Okay. That's what he said in that debate. When I debated him, I said, now you said this in the debate with Peter Payne. Would it be right to rape two people? He said, yes. He said, what about, I said, what about 2,000? He said, yes. I said, what about 2 million? He said, it would be my moral obligation to do that to save the rest of the world. And he could see that the audience was just aghast at that. And he looked at him, and then he looked over at me, and he said, you would thank me because I would be saving your life. And I said, I would never thank you for doing something that horrible because I know that I've got a better place to go after this life is over. Now, atheism cannot give you a standard for right and wrong. Don't take my word for that. Dan Barker has been in more debates than any atheist in the world. And he says, yeah, you might could do that to two million people. Do you know how far he would have to go then? What about... Two billion. If doing that to two billion people would save the other five billion, what would he have to say? Yes. What about three billion if it would save the other four and a half billion? Yes. What about three and a half billion if it would save the other four billion? Do you see where that goes? Ultimately, you would just then have to say, okay, Dan, if what you're saying is that you can do whatever you want to other people as long as you save more people, what if there was a person whose organs could save another ten people? Could you harvest their kidneys, their lungs, their heart, their eyes, etc.? If you could harvest that one person's organs and save another ten people, should you? What's Dan got to say according to this idea? Well, yeah, you just do whatever will save the most people. Dan can't make a right and wrong statement. In fact, you see, he can't say that is wrong. He can say, I don't like it. He can say, you need to do this or that because it might help society more. But when you ask, is it right? Atheism cannot give you an answer to that question. Now, Christianity can. Because we have a standard by which we judge moral right and wrong. And that standard is the nature of God. Moral right and wrong stems from God's nature. Is it ever right to lie? No. Do you know why not? Because God is a teller of truth. Truth stems from His nature. Truth is something that if you know, you will be free. And we are told not to lie. Do you know that I can stand right here before you and say it is wrong to lie? Do you know no atheist could ever do that? It's impossible. I can stand right here before you today and say it is wrong to commit adultery. It is wrong in every single instance. There's not an instance ever, regardless of how many people you save, regardless of what it's... There's never an instance where it's right to commit adultery. I can say that. You know what? Atheism cannot. Now, what happens when atheism cannot say that it's wrong to do something or right to do something? Here's what happens. Whatever reason you come up with in your mind to justify whatever it is you want to do, that's good enough. And so, if you can't say it's wrong to lie, then, well, under this circumstance, in my case, it was a good thing because. 
and you just give whatever justification you want. And that is the logical implication of atheism. Continue with me. Suppose we were to look at the idea that we discussed yesterday, abortion and atheism. You know, yesterday we had an in-depth discussion on this topic showing how the Bible views abortion, that abortion is the shedding of innocent blood. And in Proverbs chapter 6, we read, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to the Lord, a lying tongue, feet that are swift to do evil. And one of those is what? Hands that shed innocent blood. In fact, we understand, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and following, that humans are created in the image of God. And that they are valuable and they are precious and they are special because God breathed into them life and created them in His image. We've killed 50 million of our children in the United States of America in the past 40 years because we have not recognized the fact that humans are made in the image of God. Is it right to kill 50 million of your own citizens as unborn innocent children? Absolutely, positively not. Well, what, what does atheism tell us? Now listen to uh, Barbara Burke, and here's what she says. Among some animal species, infant killing appears to be a natural practice. Could it be natural for humans too? A trait inherited from our primate ancestors. Charles Darwin noted in The Descent of Man that infanticide has been probably the most important of all checks on population growth throughout most of human history. She says, you know what? If you look at the animal kingdom, they kill their babies. If you're just an animal and they kill their babies, then, well, then you could kill yours. My parents bought a coon dog. They thought she was going to be great. She was a high-powered coon dog. Had a pedigree as long as your arm. And the babies from this dog were going to be worth about 500 to 1,000 bucks a piece. She had the first litter and she had 12 of them. And they thought, this is great. She killed all of them but one because she thought she could only raise one puppy. The next litter, she had eight, killed every one of them but one because she thought she could only raise one puppy at a time. Barbara Burke says, look, if you're just an animal and animals kill their babies, if for some reason you having a baby is going to be problematic to something that you want to do, maybe it's going to get in the way of your job, maybe it's going to get in the way of you having the finances that you would like, maybe it's going to get in the way of the traveling schedule that you have always envisioned for yourself. If that's the case, then you could terminate the life of that child just like animals do. If you are taught that you are nothing more than an animal, how are you going to behave? Does it surprise us when children who have been taught all of their lives that they are evolved primordial slime take an automatic weapon into a school and kill their fellow classmates and then ultimately end their own lives? And we wonder why in the world that is happening. And yet if we were to look at the education that they have had, we would see that they have been told that they are not special, that they are a random, mutated mess of genes that has gotten here over mindless ages of eons of time and chance processes? Why does that surprise us? If we were to say, you can't do that, their response is, why? Who says? You? Well, you're just involved primarily in the sign like I am. Continue with me. Let me tell you who Peter Singer is before you read this, if you don't mind. I know that's difficult, but look at me right here. Peter Singer is, I used to have a little flipper that I could make it black. And then you couldn't read that. But I know, if I was sitting in lines, I'd be reading it myself. But listen to, listen to me. Peter Singer is recognized as the world's leading ethicist. An ethicist is supposed to be someone who can tell you the difference between right and wrong. Peter Singer is an atheist. In Dan Barker's 2008 book, Godless, he says, Singer is recognized as the leading ethicist in the world. A man by the name of Richard Dawkins, about whom you may have heard, said that Peter Singer is the most moral individual he has ever met. Okay? Now here's what Singer says. If we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, a dog or a pig, for example, we'll often find that the non-human has superior capacities. Only the fact that the defective infant is a member of the species Homo sapiens leads it to be treated differently from the dog or pig. 
Species membership alone, however, is not morally relevant. Now, let me uh, kind of break that down for you. Here's what he says. You know, historically, we've said that if you see a human, a homo sapiens, if you see a human, you save that human for one reason. Not because it's smarter, not because it's more healthy. You save it for a single reason. What's that reason? It's human. That's the only reason you save it. He said, but look, we've got dogs and pigs that they might be smarter or more beneficial to society. And historically, we've always said you save the human just because it's human. But now, notice what he says. Species membership is not morally relevant. He said, you never should save an organism just because it's a member of some species. Just because it's a dog, you don't save it. Just because it's a pig, you don't save it. Just because it's a human, you don't save it, he says. If we can put aside the obsolete and erroneous notion of the sanctity of all human life, we may start to look at human life as it really is. He said, we've been saving human life because it's human life. But if we could get rid of that obsolete idea, then we might make some headway into deciding what's really right and wrong. Well, what are you getting at here, Peter Singer? What are you trying to say? Well, you know where he's going with this, I think, don't you? Continue with me, he says. Now listen to it close. That a fetus is known to be disabled is widely accepted as ground for abortion. Now, we would say absolutely positively not. But the secular community that he's talking to here would, would say, yes, okay. If you look inside a mother's womb and you see that this child is going to have some type of disability, they would say, okay, you could abort that. Now, notice what he said. Now, we would never because that's wrong because this is human life. But notice what he says. Yet in discussing abortion... We say that birth does not mark a significant dividing line morally. I can't see how a person could defend the view that fetuses can be replaced, but newborn infants can't. Now, isn't that what we've been saying for years? How can you say a child that is a day before it's born could be aborted, but a day after it's born it couldn't be? Okay, we've been saying that exact same thing for years. A child is a child. Now, what have we always concluded from that? You can't kill a one-day-old, so you can't kill a child that is not yet born. You can't kill a one-month-old, so you can't kill a child that is one month from being born. A child is a child. Finally, somebody sees it. Oh, no, no, no. Singer doesn't see it. In fact, what he says is, if we say you could abort the child before it's born, where do you think he's going? Well, then you could you could kill the child after he's born. I mean, if disabled infants were not regarded as having a right to life until, say, a week or a month after birth, it would allow parents in consultation with their doctors to choose on the basis of far greater knowledge of the infant's condition than is possible before birth. He says, you know what, I'll tell you what we need to do. You know, we just need to pick a, pick a amount of time. Let's make it a month, make it two months, hey, make it a year. And if this child does not progress to the level we think it should in a year, let's just terminate it. Because we get to decide when that child has a right to life. Now, since when do humans decide when another human has the right to life? Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self Evident. You know what self-evident means? You don't even need to discuss them. They're so clear, you shouldn't even have to lay any groundwork to verify them. These truths are self-evident. That all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. From where do we get the right to life? Our Creator. If you jettison, if you get rid of, if you put out of the picture the Creator, guess what you lose? All human rights. Amen. Who is Peter Singer saying should get to decide who has the right to life? Him. And other people that think like him who have put this erroneous idea of the sanctity of all human life out of their minds and now see human life for what it really is and evolved life just like the life of a dog or pig and you consider whether you want to keep it or have it based on its beneficiality to society, not based on whether it's human. Continue with me. Nevertheless, the main point is clear. Killing a disabled infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Very often, it's not wrong at all. It would be one thing if I were standing before you today saying this is what atheism leads to. That would be something. 
saying, you know what, the logical implication of atheism is you start treating people like animals, etc. That's not what's happening. You understand the difference between me saying it and me reading to you what Peter Singer says. This man is recognized as the world's leading ethicist. And he's the one that's telling you that atheism leads to this. Now, I appreciated the reading out of Psalm 19, 1 through 3. It was supposed to be Psalm 14, 1 through 3. I know that 9 and that 4 looked up very similar. And now let me tell you why I say that. Here's what Psalm 14, 1 through 3 says. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable things. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now, do you know what that psalm is giving you? It's giving you a commentary on what happens when a person or society says in his heart, there is no God. The justice of that person or society is out the window. And they do corrupt, abominable, horrible, terrible things. Now, let me go back and say, I'm not saying that every person who does not believe in God, who's an atheist, is going to go out and kill babies just because they don't view them as human until a year old. That's not what I'm saying at all. Just like I'm not saying that every person who says that he or she is a Christian is going to do unto others as he wants them to do unto him. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the philosophy of atheism leads to the logical consequence that we are discussing here. You see the difference. Continue with me, James Rachel who was a professor at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, here's what he says. An infant with severe brain damage, even if it survives for many years, it may never learn to speak. Its mental powers may never rise above a primitive level. In fact, its psychological capacities may be markedly inferior to those of a typical rhesus monkey. In that case, moral individualism would see no reason to prefer its life over the monkey's. Look, it's not going to be as smart as a monkey. It's not going to help society as much as a monkey. Well, you don't keep it alive and kill the monkey. Here's what he says. Some unfortunate humans, because they've suffered brain damage, they're not rational agents. What are we to conclude about them? Well, the natural conclusion, according to the doctrine we're considering, would be that their status is that of mere animals. And perhaps we should go on to conclude that they may be used as non-human animals are used. Perhaps as laboratory subjects or as food. Folks, this guy was teaching at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. There are 35,000 students at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. It's one of the largest universities in the country. He's recognized as a leader in the atheistic community, or was. And he says, you know what? Hey, I mean, if we're just animals, how do we treat other animals? Use them as lab subjects or as food? Well, maybe that's what we should be doing with humans that don't meet a certain, meet a certain level that we think would be beneficial to society. There again, this is not Kyle Butt telling you this. I'm reading it straight from these men in their own words. Frederick Nietzsche said, we believe that severity, violence, danger in the street, in the heart, secrecy, stoicism, tempters, art, devilry of every kind. Everything wicked, terrible, tyrannical, predatory, serpentine in man serves as well for the elevation of the human species as the opposite. Now, he wrote this in an essay titled Beyond Good and Evil. Here's what he says. The way you're looking at stuff is just not the way it should be looked at. You're looking at some things and saying, he stole something from that woman? That's wrong. That's bad. That's evil. He killed a person? That's evil. He said, we've got to get beyond this notion of good and evil. Now, let me give you an example. I was down in Montgomery, and there, was a, there were a couple guys that saw an F-150 truck that they wanted. And so they saw a guy get in that F-150 truck. He drove to Walmart. His wife had called him, asked him to stop at Walmart to get some bread and milk, as I understand it. He went into Walmart. He got some bread and milk. He came out, went back to his truck. These two guys had a pistol. One of them pulled the pistol, shot this guy dead, took his key, stole his truck. They wanted his truck, they shot him, killed him, took him. Was that wrong? Was that evil? Was that bad? Nietzsche says, hold on just a second. You're asking the wrong question. Could that have helped to elevate the human species as much as anything? Could they have been smarter than that guy that they killed and they just eliminated some genes from the human gene pool that weren't as fit as theirs? He says, sure, that could be the case. So instead of looking at this saying this is evil, we need to get beyond this idea of good and evil, and we need to ask ourselves the simple question, could that help humans evolve better? And if the answer could be yes, then you can't say it's evil. You can say, well, I sure hope that's not me. I sure don't like it. I sure would like to put some rules in place to keep that from happening. 
my kids. Yeah, but that's not what we're asking. What I want to know is it evil. We can't answer that question, the atheist says. It's impossible. We've got to get beyond the ideas of good and evil. Adolf Hitler says, Thus there results the subjection of a number of people under the will often of a few persons, a subjection based simply upon the right of the stronger right, which as we see in nature can be regarded as the sole conceivable right because it's founded on reason. He says, I'll tell you what. In the wild do the strongest things win. Sure they do. If a lion is bigger than a gazelle, does the lion attack the gazelle and eat it? Absolutely. And if a bigger lion than that one comes along and wants the gazelle that that lion killed, does the bigger lion run that littler lion off and take the gazelle from him? Sure. He says that's how we see nature work. And if we're just parts of nature, and that's how nature works, then the soul conceivable right... You know what the soul conceivable... Soul means the only one. The only way to see what's right and wrong is to look at the natural world and see how it operates and then to behave that way. You know, I went down to Waffle House last night. I love Waffle House. They're T-bone steaks. I love a Waffle House T-bone steak. And I went down to Waffle House and there was a Waffle House T-bone steak on the menu. I thought they, they said they were going to quit serving T-bone steaks. Do you know that Waffle House is the number one server of T-bone steaks in the nation? They serve more T-bone steaks than any steak restaurant in the nation. And boy, I went down and I ordered a 10-ounce T-bone steak at Waffle House last night. Now, when my T-bone steak got to me, it looked like it was about a 5-ounce. It was the thinnest little piece of steak you've ever seen. And this guy beside me ordered an 8-ounce ribeye. When he got it, it looked like it was about a 16-ounce. And I thought, what's going on here? So I got up out of my seat and I walked over to him and I said, boy, it looks like a great steak. He looked at it. He said, yeah, it is. I said, give it to me. He said, no, I'm not giving it to you. So I punched him in the face and I took it because he was a lot littler than me. Now, you know that didn't happen. But according to Hitler, that's what he's saying should be the rule for everyday life. If you want something and someone smaller than you has it, then you take it because guess what? That's helping the human species evolve to be stronger and more fit. And you just take what you want if you can because you're stronger and the strong survive, don't they? And the weak are eliminated and that helps the human species evolve. That's what's being said here. Is that absurd? Is it morally wrong? Is it ridiculous? Is it horrible? Yes. Is that what atheism says is a viable option? Yeah. Would you ever get that idea from the Bible? Could you ever come away from the Bible and think that just because you might be physically stronger or more intelligent, you would have the right to demean and to hurt and to harm other people? Pure religion undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. How in the world could you ever come away from the New Testament thinking that you would have a right if you were stronger and bigger to do what you wanted to widows and orphans and people that couldn't protect themselves? You never would, would you? And yet according to atheism, hey, if you're just an animal and big animals win, then if you can do it, do it. Continue with me. I'm going to pass that one. We looked at that one yesterday. Let me uh, read this one to you. Jeffrey Dahmer. Maybe you remember Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer. He killed uh, 19 young men and boys in ways that would turn your stomach. He was on the Stone Phillips show in 1995. He had been sentenced to 900 years in prison. Jeffrey Dahmer was asked, what made you think that you could do that kind of heinous, horrible thing and things to these people that you did them to? Here's what Dahmer said. If a person doesn't think there is a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway. Jeffrey Dahmer on the Stone Phillips show in 1994, I think it was, said, the reason I felt like I could do that kind of stuff to other people was because I didn't think there was a God. And if there's not a God then what are the ranges that you should even keep your behavior in? Who can tell you what to do? And the answer that Dahmer came up with was nobody. 
And Stone Phillips looked at him and he said, when did you change? When did you stop thinking like that? Jeffrey Dahmer said, I had always believed the lie of evolution. And I had always believed that we were just products of mindless chance processes over eons of time. And he looked at his dad, Lionel, who was in the interview with him. And he said, Dad, when you sent me that creation science material, and I realized that evolution was not true, and that God did create us, then I realized what I had done was terrible. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. And they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. I was mentioning this particular story at a congregation where I was delivering this type of information. And a lady came up to me and she said, you know Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian. And I said, I had heard that. She said, well, I've got the uh, Christian Woman magazine article that talks about it. She sent that to me, and I read the article on Jeffrey Dahmer. He was sentenced to 900 years in prison. There was a a beautiful, wonderful lady from the Lord's Church who decided she was going to start corresponding with him. Started sending him a Bible correspondence course. He started doing the Bible correspondence course, as I understand it. Sent several lessons back. She would send another one, send the lesson back. He had gotten so far through the lesson that... He had come to the conclusion that he needed to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. She contacted one of the preachers who was in the area there, sent that preacher in to study with Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer came in contact with the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in all its simplicity. A gospel that says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all exceptions, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, Paul said, of whom I am. Jeffrey Dahmer realized that the one thing that he needed more than anything in this world was forgiveness from his Creator. The Creator that had designed him to behave so differently than he had behaved. And if I understand it correctly, he was immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. And within a few short weeks, he was bludgeoned to death by people in the prison where he was sent because of the crimes that he committed. Now, do you think the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to forgive Jeffrey Dahmer? Do you think if he repented and was baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and came out of that watery grave of baptism as a new creature, do you think that God could save him? Do you know what the beauty of Christianity is? The beauty of Christianity is that you have a Savior who loves you so much that He gave His life for you, that no matter how many times you have done wrong, and no matter how bad they are, and no matter how heinous your crimes and your sins, you can be forgiven today. Atheism doesn't have anything like that. Atheism has a bleak outlook on what happens after death, and atheism can offer no forgiveness for the sins that we know we've committed. But praise our God and Savior, we have a different plan. Do you need to respond to the Lord's invitation? I hope you will as we stand and as we sing. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. 
There is power, power, one working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, one working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you do service for Jesus your King? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily his praises to sing? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Let me make one statement, if you don't mind. This will not take long. I sure appreciate you allowing me to be a part of your congregation this weekend. I have had a wonderful time. You have blessed me by your presence and by your very attentive listening and your good questions. I can see that you have been interested in this topic. It looks like that you have understood lots of the implications of this. Several of you have said, we're going to try to get this information into the hands of other people that need it. And I applaud you for that. And I commend your eldership for having the foresight to put something like this on. I want to ask a special request, if you don't mind. I am going to be involved in a debate on April the 4th of this upcoming year, 2014, with a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman has a Ph.D. from Princeton Theological Seminary. If I understand it correctly, he could have gone to the University of Kansas on a debating scholarship. He is a professor at the University of North Carolina, and he has about four New York Times bestsellers, and he's written about 28 books or so. If you were just to stack up our credentials beside each other in every way, he outstrips me. Now, I believe that the Lord is going to use this event to bring glory to his name, and here's why. We will be teaching the truth. He says that the pain and suffering in this world proves that the God of the Bible cannot exist. And what we're going to be able to show is that the pain and suffering in this world does not show that the God of the Bible does not exist. So number one, we've got the truth. And number two, as I have traveled around the country for the last about eight months or so, I have asked every congregation to pray for this event. And I think probably right now we've got about 20,000, 25,000 Christians praying for the success of this event. And I am firmly convinced that our God will hear those petitions and will use this event for the glory of His name. And so what I would ask you to do is please put it in your bulletin. Please put it on your prayer list as individuals and as classes. If you have a, a young adult class or whatever classes you've got, if you will put Kyle Butt's debate with Bart Ehrman on that prayer list, I would greatly appreciate it. And I know how sometimes you make an announcement and you think, yeah, I need to put that on the prayer list, and it just doesn't get on there. And I know that's how it goes a lot, but I am really asking you to please put that on your prayer list because the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And you just think about the effective fervent prayer of 25,000 righteous people and just think what God can do with that. So I really do appreciate that. You'll be able to watch the debate online. It'll be streamed live online on the Gospel Broadcasting Network uh, website and probably on the Apologetics Press website. So if you wanted to watch it, you could see it online. It'll be April the 4th at 6 in the evening. And it's going to be on the campus of the University of North Alabama. So appreciate your time. Sure, appreciate your presence here. And thank you for letting me be a part of your congregation this weekend. Let's close with 71. First verse only, 71. And we let in closing prayer. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior.
Thank you, Kyle, for the great lesson. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Our most merciful and loving God, our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the privilege to assemble here, to hear a portion of your word, to sing songs and give praise unto you. We're thankful for your Son who came to this earth to live and to die that we might have eternal life. We thank you, Father, for the peace and the freedom that we enjoy here in America that we can assemble here without any harm. And we thankful, Father, for our brothers and sisters here and around the world. We pray, Father, for those who are being persecuted for your name's sake. We pray that you bless and comfort them, give them the courage and the faith to carry on. And, Father, as we go through this life, we ask that you help us in all things that we say and do, that they be pleasing to you and according to your will. And, Father, we ask that you be with our missionaries wherever they might be. Bless and strengthen them. Help them in their work that they might bring souls to you. And, Father, we ask that you be with all those who are suffering physically. Pray that be your will. You bless and comfort them. Restore them to their much-needed health and strength. And, Father, we pray for those in the disaster area and the Philippines and other parts around the world. Pray that you bless and comfort them and help them in the way you see they have need. And, Father, we we continue to thank you for all the blessings you provide for us, and we thankful again for our health and the health you restored to so many. And we ask you to go with us as we go through this day and this life. Till we meet again, these favors and blessings we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.